Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks, just the one geek this week, it's me, James Carey, and in this episode I'm going to play an interview I recorded with Mark Evans, writer and comedy actor. He wrote for and starred in That Mitchell and Webb Look, uh, he also co-wrote two episodes of Blue Stone 4-2, Series 3, in which he also played the Padre for a couple of episodes, and um, I was keen for him to be writing on Bluestone 4-2 because I've always loved his radio sitcom called Bleak Expectations that you can regularly hear being repeated on Radio 4 Extra. And it then became Bleak Old Shop of Stuff on the television. And like many a Dickensian hero, was cut off in its prime. So we'll be hearing more about that in the course of the interview. Uh, we recorded this interview before we knew that the BBC One show Dickensian existed, so that's why we don't refer to it. And we begin the interview as Mark and I have begun many of our conversations by talking about cricket. But don't worry, we get to the comedy yeah, very yeah, soon. He was on 28 off nine balls when I uh, switched on. I thought, I just wonder if he can do that, you know, the, the half century. I wonder where he can go from here. And I watched it, it's like... <laughs> yeah, George Offie. Um, going back to our other love of comedy. <sighs> yes, comedy. Um, you obviously fell in love with cricket at an early age. I did. <clears throat> at what age did you realise that comedy was your thing? Sort of above and beyond how other people consumed comedy. Uh, I think when England picked Bill Athey for the nineteenth time, that's a very cricket nerdy joke, isn't it? And I don't mean no disrespect to Bill Athey, who's an excellent county batsman. You tried batting against the West Indies quicks of the eighties. Sorry, it's a, it's a comedy podcast. Isn't I've, it? I've, I've captained a team against Bill Athey when he was qualifying for the MCC, ah. and uh, he scored one hundred and twenty-eight mm. against a bunch of schoolboys, of which I was one. Was he a nice man? Uh, Not with a bat in hand. <laughs> Correct. But at what point did you realise that you enjoyed comedy more than your peers? I don't know. That's that's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's always a sort of there's a really there's usually a slightly nerdy group of boys, and it usually I, I hope it's not anymore just boys, but it used to be just boys. Probably because my schools were slightly more boy than girl heavy uh, nerds who'd be into comedy slightly. Um, when did I realise it was more? I think probably um, relatively early, I think I realised I really wanted to do comedy. And it was, um, uh, I am actually going to tie this into cricket now. We used to go on a, a, a sort of cricket festival from my uh, school when I was 12, 13. And one year, one of the four competing schools said, oh, we should do a, an evening of funny entertainment sketches. And every school had to come up with a sketch. And we did a sketch that uh, our young cricket coach had written about Australians standing in the slips uh, for um, uh, Ian Botham and it was all you know pommy mocking and then he both them smashing all over the place and they're going oh, yeah. it wasn't very funny uh, but one of the jokes in it was they decided that everyone should be sipping from cans of lager in the slips because they were Australians and this was about 1981 where you're allowed to be that stereotypically awful and my father heard about this and he bought me at the time you could buy Foster's Lager in a tremendously large two-litre can. <laughs> so he got one of those, emptied it and gave it to me and went, I think this might get a bigger laugh. <laughs> and he was absolutely spot on. And somehow I knew instinctively to hide it until everyone else's cans had been seen. <laughs> and I think it was, that was one of those early points where you go, do you know what, I think I quite like this, getting, getting the bigger laugh than everyone else. And thinking it through more. These were just, the rest of my friends, we were all cricket mad, but I was the only one who was comedy mad and thinking, how do I time this, how do I do that? Yeah, rather um, than merely reciting something you'd heard. Because also, you, you yeah. might get that thing where you realise that they're saying the lines wrong. Um, or that they're sort of, it's not right, you haven't remembered it. Yeah. You know, because also in those days, 
because we're both roughly of the same age where our comedy, our love of comedy slightly predates the video recorder. Ah, yes. And so you saw it once on TV last night and you, you don't get to see it again. Yeah. And you sort of pride yourself that you can kind of remember it and remember yeah. exactly what the joke was rather than roughly what the joke was. Yes, yeah, because you, you have to do that and you do it with, you do it with everything. I remember <laughs> doing it even with Baron Knight songs when I was about eight or nine, which is quite odd. And, and I still maintain some of them are quite funny. Um, uh, so I, yes, I remember. I distinctly remember trying to remember a, uh, a Baron Knight song. I couldn't have. I didn't. I couldn't remember it. I couldn't remember the lyrics. And I remember sort of making up my own in no place. And with hindsight, you go. I, th- I think you wanted to be a comedy writer from quite a young age. And I, the first sketch I wrote and did myself was when I was thirteen, when I went to big school, and we did an end of term thing at Christmas, a uh, sort of house review. Um, that gives away my boarding schooly education there the house, use the word house yeah um, fair enough and um, uh, I'm going con- to was- conceal the fact that I also was in a house <laughs> at a boarding school yeah uh, so uh, uh, and I can edit this podcast to uh, remove my references yeah you can make yeah. me look bad. I mean a lot of people when they say well you know uh, we, did a, we did a house review with me you know them maybe their brother and sister and their parents but I didn't see them for most of my childhood uh, and I don't even have a sister I, I'm pretty sure I don't I don't know I wasn't at home a lot I may have one. She may be furious. I haven't been in touch for thirty years. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but um, I do. Uh, I remember that the, they did this end of term. It was the end of my first term at high school, where I, where I wasn't having a very nice time. My first term, I didn't enjoy it. I, I was, you know, a bit bullied um, as being a um, uh, <laughs> a scholarship boy with a big forehead. Um, you know, I, a forehead that had <laughs> metaphorically written neon on it. Target. Um, and yet somehow I really wanted to do a sketch at the end of this um, term review. And it was, a th- it was the domain of the bigger kids, the older kids. And, um, and I wrote and performed a sketch and cajoled a friend into doing it with me, um, which was sort of uh, a parody of uh, a talk a teacher had done about something. And I did that. And um, I, I, I look back and think, Why? Uh, why was I putting myself out there when I was already slightly out there and already slightly being picked on? What, why would I do that? Sort of um, went double or, double or quits. It, it was a bit. It, let's double down on this unpopularity. It's extraordinary. Possibly it helps that it was the last night of term and the worst that can happen is one ghastly beating <laughs> the last 12 hours before your parents come and get you. Um, and, but it, it seemed to go quite well. But I don't know what possessed me to think I could possibly do that and to just go away and sit in a small... Uh, tiny room and scratch out on a bit of A4 with a pen uh, because that's how it happened back then. Um, the typewriter hadn't yet been invented, a laptop, um, a sketch. And so I think that, again, is one of the things you go, oh, oh, I see how I ended up here, despite all the other sort of career options that were sort of part of the forefront of my mind growing up. And that's interesting, though, that you decided to go away and write something mm. because um, a lot of I mean, because you are a writer and a performer, and one would possibly say a writer-performer, and yet it seems that you see the two things as slightly more distinct, whereas there are some people who might have risen up through and they would look for something that they could use in order to perform it so that they could be a performer, whereas it seems that you thought, oh, I could parody that and write it. You sort of saw the two disciplines as separate. And therefore, even now, you do sort of see your... Do you see yourself as a writer-performer, a performer who can write, or a writer who also performs. 
Is that the cricket all-rounder question? Is he a batsman who bowls or, a bo- or is he a genuine all-rounder like Ian Botham? Yeah. Um, where would I put myself? Uh, well, you know, I like to think of myself as uh, Sir Garfield St Alban Sobers, uh, Gary Sobers. Uh, but I'm worried I'm, I'm, you know, Craig White, Phil DeFratis or even David Capel to list three nerdy cricket all-rounders who are hailed as the new Botham. And These illustrations are going to go really well in North America. So Canada, perhaps, we uh, might be all right. Oh, hang but, uh, on. Um, let me put that in baseball terms. Cal Ripken Jr., the Baltimore Orioles, the longest stretch of games without taking a break for injury in the history of the uh, uh, Major League Baseball, I believe. Wow. Yeah. I can't um, compete with that. No. Um, I see myself very much as uh, him or Derek Jeter, maybe. Uh, Okay, I think... Sorry, sorry. Returning to the actual Um, discipline of writing. Yeah. Uh, Yes, the writing performance thing is an interesting question, isn't it? Because it's, uh, as I've got older, the writer... Because I do more, way more writing than performing now. And much as I love performing, my writer brain takes over quite a lot. And I remember the first show I did on stage after probably about four years where I'd just been writing and doing the very occasional sketch show um, gig with uh, people... Uh, it was a tryout for a, an Edinburgh show, and it was a very early tryout. We sort of started in March just to fling stuff at the wall. And I remember sort of my brain drifting off into a reverie as I looked and went, oh, this isn't really working, isn't it? I wonder if we do it this way. And I was sort of in an out-of-body experience looking down at myself, mouthing these words, saying, ah, oh, we need to cut this down. Oh, this bit coming up's a bit cheesy. We should have thought of that beforehand, shouldn't we? And the writer brain taking over uh, is quite an interesting thing when you're performing. Uh, and the same happened, well, uh, there's a show called Bluestone 4-2, I don't know if you know it. No idea. <laughs> and playing the Padre in that recently, I remember doing a take and just thinking, ah, oh, I don't know why I'm bothering doing these last two lines, they're going to knit this in the edit about here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say them anyway. <laughs> and you start thinking that way as a, you know, the writer brain yeah. takes over. So I'd say my writer brain is predominant, but I really love performing. And at the time they were symbiotic within me mm. and then gradually the writer brain is taken over more because that's what I ended up being paid to do more of more quickly and if people had started paying me to act more often maybe I'd write less I don't know I know lots of people who wrote and performed their own stuff loads of them are now just actors or uh, and don't write um, or you know write very little and most people I know who started as writer performers and ended up writing perform a lot less it just seems to be the way it goes mm. um, the person you wrote that pantomime with, mm. was that James Barkman? No, it wasn't. Okay, um, so who was it with, and how did you end up writing with James Barkman? <laughs> James and I would never manage to write a two-hour show together. Uh, not with him in the room. No, hang on. <laughs> Sorry, James. Sorry, he... he yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all right. He, yeah. I'm not going to feel sorry for him. He's in one of those Transformer movies, isn't he? Yeah, he changes in LA now, uh, where he's... Uh, yeah. That's right. He's, he's, in trans, he's in Transformers at her Age of Extinction, the most recent one and if you listen to the trailer online he's the first voice you can hear going this could change the laws of physics as we know them I think is the line uh, he plays Stanley Tucci's nerdy lab-coated uh, British assistant awesome yeah uh, so how did you end up writing how did you end up falling into that writing partnership it was a writing performing partnership as well but it, you yeah. did write you were a writing partnership not just a writer-performer partnership yeah well, I've written with lots of different people over the years in different sorts of ways and um, I think the main reason, certainly to start off with, was um, pejorative way of putting it is cowardice. <laughs> Too scared to do it by yourself. Better way to put it, or you haven't got you know self-flagellation, is to say 
sensible way to do it because you're starting off in a weird industry uh, that's not known for its uh, the milk of human kindness. It's uh, it's a relatively you know harsh industry to to work in. Yes, doors tend not to fling open unexpectedly, and you'd be ushered in yeah. to both significance and money. So I think, given that it's a scary old world, I think unless you're a sociopathically egomaniacal, self-confident lunatic, um, that would be me. That would be well, yeah. I mean, God on your side, socio. I don't know, James. You're the one who brought this up. Um, I think it, no. I think I think unless you're unless you have a sort of sublime sense of self-confidence, some people do have that, and I really envy them. It's much easier to write with someone because then at least one other person in the world thinks it's funny. And it can be when you're starting off and you're not very experienced at things, you, you, you make your mistakes together. And it's always, it's always good to have a script editor with you by your side that is as invested in it as you are. And that can lead to horrible arguments and fallings out with people. But if you find the right writing partner, that's a great thing. It'd be interesting just to talk about um, uh, uh, bleak old... Uh, shop of stuff but before that obviously the majestic uh, bleak expectations how did that sort of come into being and what I'm interested in also is how you created that show yeah and with that in mind if you you know when you went because you're creating new shows at the moment which mm. at one point may or may not become a reality as am I and we all mm. are how you approach that differently so it's worth sort of thinking so how did you come up with uh, bleak expectations and you know, what was the process there? Right. You know, and then after that, think about how you would do it now. Well, uh, I woke up with the idea and felt fairly inspired. And I sort of wrote it over a day and a half. No, I wish. I wish. I wish it was a bit like that. Um, I, um, I, when did I first write it? About 2005. Um, uh, the very first draft of what became the radio show. Um, and uh, Were you invited to do this? Had you pitched no, it? Not you just... It was complete spec script. And um, I, I'm not a great one for writing treatments and going through that process of going and saying, here's my idea, what do you think? Okay, I'll do it like that and write out. I'm very bad at that because I, I don't think I'm very good at telling people what ideas are until I've written them down because I don't really know quite often. Uh, no matter how much I think about it, there's some the magic of putting things on the page. It's quite weird that way. Um, but I saw they were doing Bleak House on TV, which was, you know, about 10 years ago. And I... Um, it was first Dickens for a while but they'd done a lot of costume drama and I remember thinking God wouldn't it be you know a, a, a show like that but funny you know long lovely uh, tracking shots through uh, old London town people discuss things with, with serious import and enormous hats and mutton chop whiskers but yet what they're talking about is ridiculous and I thought come on that's crying out to be done isn't it that, that sounds really fun Um and I thought, oh, I, I think I'm a Dickens parody. It sounds like you had that feeling where you discovered you you felt you felt like you discovered a show rather than thought of it. Yes, yeah, it's like a low hanging fruit. And yeah. Ethan, you go, why is, why is it not yes, done? You're, you're looking both done? ways, thinking, does no one else not? Is this not? Oh, can I? Oh, right. You know, very occasionally you do have an idea, and you just think, I can't believe that no one else has done this. Although annoyingly, yeah. sometimes you then discover that they have done it. Or, or, but so, but fortunately, it was an ITV sitcom in the 70s and all the tapes had been wiped, yes. so you're fine. Yeah, it seemed like such low-hanging fruit. I'll do a Dickens 
parody, for want of a better word. That's not quite what I was thinking. I was thinking more 19th century. But the reason I actually read it is because I'd been in the sort of the trenches of light entertainment and not proper comedy in a way. Not that I'm dismissing light entertainment. Mm. I had some great experiences doing light entertainment with Anton Deck and things like that. But I suddenly realised for a long time my CV didn't contain any actual pure comedy. And I hadn't written a, a sitcom script for, you know, several years, let alone one of my own. I think I'd written a couple for hire and things. And so I sat down and I wrote uh, a quite insane <laughs> uh, kind of one-hour-long uh, script um, uh, for TV originally and it it ended, it ended in a sort of weird cliffhangery way and the stage scripts got more and more um, uh, self-referential uh, such as uh, I think you've probably realised by now dear readers that I have no idea where I'm going but bear with me okay now something happens like this remember I mean that's bad dialogue but it was a bit like that the last few pages which meant that I only sent it to three or four producers, or my agents sent it to three or four producers that I know well enough to get away with that. Um, and also on the basis that if someone didn't like that, well, it was on page 57 of this mad 62-page script. And if they got that far, I was probably in the green anyway. It's fine. Um, in the green, that's not a phrase. I had a green light. No, I didn't, you know what I mean? In the red. No, that's the other way. In the black. In the that's black. The bank, I mean, oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's odd, isn't it, that in the black sounds like that you're in profit, whereas actually yeah. that would imply that you're in debt. Um how long did it take you to write and how much of it did you plan first? Because you've got a lot of characters and a lot yeah. of people that come back. Did many of those come out fully formed or was there a bit of planning or did you basically just start writing and see what happened? Well, I think it's one of those rare lucky things that it sort of came out. I did plan. I did think about it. For how long? Um, I, this is the thing. I can't remember. It's nearly a, nearly a decade ago. But what, um, what I remember is thinking it just needs to be a, um, a, a you know, it needs to be a happy family ruined. They've got to be really rich, you know, have this lovely lifestyle compared to the rest of Britain at the time, and it's got to be ruined by someone evil, and there's probably got to be some law involved, and they've got to end up in a horrible school, because I didn't know much Dickens, and that sort of summed up to me what it should be, and quite right not knowing much, you can only attack that nice thing when you don't know too much, otherwise you write nerdy jokes that some people go, oh, that is brilliant, and everyone goes, don't get it, mate, don't get it. Um, that's why I'm deliberately ignorant of Charles Dickens. Um, and I just sort of, I wrote it in quite a splurgy way and it was quite a, a, it was a lucky format to sort of hit upon in that almost all of that first episode could be exposition in a way. So things are being driven along by saying, here's what our childhood was like. I'm going to do the 12 funniest visual jokes I can think of because I remember it was a TV script at the time. Um, and... Somehow you go, oh, I've written 15 pages of mad jokes, what their life is like. And, oh, well, there's their, there are the characters. And, for example, I don't think um, the main character didn't have two sisters. He had one to start with. But when I'm writing it, it was funnier to have a second sister because I wrote a whole thing about um, their names all being alike. And there's a scene which did make it into the radio series about um, the dad giving them all presents, you know, for Pippa Pipe, for Poppy a Puppy and for Pippa a... Oh, it was an anvil. Anyway. Creating characters for the sake of one joke is perfectly acceptable. Yeah, and that's why I had to kill her off after the first series because I hadn't got anything for it to do. But I killed her off in a way that was nice. And it sort of it sort of fell organically into place in a way. And the characters go, well, that seems... Those seem good. That seems okay. Well, let's see what people think. Um, so I probably did plan, but I knew roughly what it was going to be. And, it, and because it's a sort of parodic thing, that makes it much easier. The shape is out there in the world of bad things happen to unlucky people. 
There's your story for an episode. You don't have to think too hard about it. Um, whereas other things you think much harder. So I was, quite, I was quite lucky that way. And then I had to start thinking more seriously about it when I got commissioned for a series on the radio, having um, Gareth Edwards, the marvellous Gareth Edwards, who said, I think you've written a radio show here by mistake. It's full of words. And he goes, yeah, it is full of words. And he goes, these words would take ages to say on television. would be really boring. Oh, you're all right. You know what you're doing. I don't. Um, and so I rewrote it for radio. And I think... Um, the second episode and onwards became harder because I had sort of written an expository first episode and that's when I had to really put the nose to grindstone and work out what it was. And actually, I think the series changes quite a bit in the first series and then between that and the second. I think the second, third, fourth and fifth are a bit more like a sitcom. Uh, they're much more, here's a story of the week, which is usually Mr Benevolent trying to take over the world and then thwarting them. And that's a really good way to make it easy to write plots for yourself. Think of a ridiculous plan Think of ridiculous uh, ways a foil plan. At the end, he runs off going, ha-ha, you're foiled. Uh, you foiled me. That's actually quite an easy way to write a sitcom plot. You have to work quite hard to find the the mechanics within that. And the variations and the... Yeah, and, and uh, but it it is... It's easier than writing what I would call a proper sitcom plot. I don't, I don't in a way, see Bleak of Station as a proper sitcom, though I think it possibly is. I'm not sure. It's slightly heightened plot-wise. Well, there's um, a sense in which... Um, the, the, you said something earlier which suddenly clanged alarm bell uh, in my head, which which worries me, which is you said these sitcom, th- these characters are extremely unlucky and they don't really deserve what happens to them. And in one sense, one of the rules of sitcom is the author, you know, the, the protagonist is the author of his or her own downfall. Yeah. And so there's a sense in which um, perhaps you do break that rule but there's another sense in which, because it's slightly parodical, it sort of doesn't matter. Um, there's a sense in which, um, I'm afraid, your show doesn't work. <laughs> well, no, but After five series, we have finally declared it a failure. It's, it's probably true. It's probably not a proper sitcom. I mean, I'm not sure. But I think actually, it, is. I mean, it is. But there are things like, you know, the main character, you know, Pip, the main character, is the uh, Asian Zane downfall because the number of times he's come across Mr. Levin you know, disguised as a cowboy or as a woman and just gone, well, that's fine, I'll take them at face value when they're obviously not. Well, in that case, I think you've probably hit upon the solution because he does take things at face value because he is incredibly noble and brave. He assumes the world around him is equally noble and brave and it isn't. Yes. So in one sense, it's a slight fish-out-of-water, innocent-abroad show, isn't it, where he is sort of constantly surprised and confounded by quite how dastardly everyone around him is and how cruel yeah. life is. Slightly. And also, also he's not, he's not actually that. No, the, the character note for him was the, how he came about was imagining Roger Reese on the poster of Nicholas Nickleby in the 80s, which is him standing in a sort of wedge of the rest of the cast behind him. He's got his hands down by his sides and he's looking noble. Oh, so noble is Roger Reese as Nicholas Nickleby. And I thought, well, oh, he looks a bit of an arse. Let's take that... <laughs> Let's do someone like that. Let's take not, him down. Slightly. And, and Pip in Blizzard is nowhere near as noble as he imagines himself to be. He's actually, at times, a massive bastard to his, to his long-suffering wife, to, you know, to his best friend. He, he's a bit of an arse, but there's something great about, I think, about... Uh, you know, I think I stumbled onto it, that archetype of the arse who doesn't... Re- the idiot who doesn't realise he's an idiot and a sidekick who is an idiot. And that's... What's a sitcom there, isn't it? That's fine. Um... But, I mean, Harry Biscuit came out because I thought, oh, what's a funny name? I thought, well, Harry Biscuit, that's a funny name. And then I thought, well, why is he called Harry Biscuit? Oh, he's, he's 
her and his daddy mentioned the biscuit. That that seems the right joke there. And you just go on and go, that seems to be enough to sustain the character. He's an idiot. That's fine. And then, oh, look, I've written someone who's very useful to go up and interrupt any expository or dull scene over the next five series by just saying something asinine. Brilliant. Or with some ridiculous invention. Yeah. In, you know, all yeah. Sorts of the inventions, are, yeah, just chuck in one of those. It makes things much easier. Um, um, anyway, the, the show is a joy and a delight. I'd have to discuss it all evening. Much. However, <laughs> um, it's, uh, you, you, you thought of it as a TV show. You did radio yeah. and then it transferred to television, mm. uh, which, was, which was overall, I would imagine, an unsatisfactory experience because I saw you at various points during its development and commissioning, decommissioning, recommissioning. Um, and yeah. um, what, what, what do you... What do you take from that experience? Um, um, other than, firstly, you know, what are you what are you pleased with? What what kind of what what what, what did you enjoy about the experience um, apart from being paid properly? Um, well, <laughs> that was nice. Stuff. That was very nice. Um, what did I take from the experience that um, it was an interesting one. It was a hard sell all along, and we tried to get the radio show onto TV as it as it was basically. And I wrote two scripts to the BBC like that, um, which proved that um, it can be done as not just a radio show. And one of the nicest comments I got was someone saying, if I hadn't known this was a radio show beforehand, I would never have guessed because it's, it's such a purely visual script. And, um, you know, so I, I axed the narrator completely, which meant I got rid of a lot of jokes that way and, and uh, redid it almost completely but um, the story is the same but I basically did reimagine it completely for television I don't think you'd be able to tell um, and then a lot of people at BBC liked it but they would have to make a pilot they'd have the money to make an expensive pilot um, uh, there was always that cry we want the new Blackadder oh it's a bit too much like Blackadder um, and so on and so forth and and you understand it might be a more expensive show to make than most it's, it's not an easily sellable thing um, so yes why is that? What I don't understand is, I, I mean, I'm going to sort of now bitch about it in a way that I probably promised myself I wouldn't. Mm. But I find it very hard to understand that people would say it's not very accessible if it's a comedy about period costumes, about costume dramas. Yeah. And to say, you do know that BBC One is absolutely covered in costume dramas and the biggest show at the moment is Downton Abbey. Yeah. So to say that there is no appetite for this kind of thing... I think, yeah, but I think... I, I find th odd. I think you find it... Well, a, a, I think most people at the top of the chain, because they get so many things lobbed at them, their instant reaction is, how can I say no to this? And I don't mean that in any bad way. I imagine I'd be exactly the same, you know. I imagine it's a bit like being James Dyson, inventor of the, <laughs> you know, amazing Bangladesh Hoover. I imagine he gets thousands and thousands of letters from people with suggestions for inventions of what he could do next every day. And a lot of them would be rubbish and some of them would be excellent. But you just can't wade through that sort of thing. I don't know why I picked James Dyson, I really don't. Odd, it's, odd like being a, it's like being someone who runs a TV channel, having <laughs> that would be a much better analogy, because that wouldn't be an analogy, it would be how it is. <laughs> that's, that's the way it works. Right, glad we ironed but, that out. But there are so many different things, and I think your instinct is to go, no. And your instinct is to play safe, because... Um, actually, I think I'm not going to go back to an engineering analogy. You know, uh, change in science, things like that, rarely happens in leaps, it's incremental. And if you apply that sort of thing to television, they don't want something that is utterly different to what's been on already within the genre. They want something that's a bit like but different, a bit like but different. Um, and so I can understand the desire for incremental change because it's, it's safer and uh, a 
a sort of costume drama parody, while it would seem obvious to people in the comedy world, I think, think was that obvious? And again, I think it comes down to the fact there was loads of costume drama, but then that's their premium product. And to do something that undercuts that is bad. And as an analogy, I would, I would uh, analogize to this is the, is the project I did that was the most fun day's work I've ever done for no money in my life, which was um, Henry Naylor, who's a fantastic man in comedy, and a uh, great man, got together a bunch of people, and we did um, alternative red-button commentary uh, for cricket test matches pitched to uh, Sky. That would be on the red button, and we would be there, and we all, a bunch of us, took on different uh, characters, cricket-style characters, um, so we had Dave Lamb was playing an Australian who was a sort of shame-worn type figure. Henry Nader was a gruff, retired Northern umpire, I seem to remember. Um, and uh, Lawrence Howarth did a very an incredibly good Mark Nicholas-style character, which I wouldn't know how to parody Mark Nicholas, and he nailed him perfectly. It was brilliant. I did a South African uh, ex-Special Forces veteran and all-rounder called Peter Van Gunker, uh, who has killed a man... <laughs> in, uh, what's, what's the trademark everyone goes, oh, have I killed a man in cold blood? No, no, I have not. No, I've not killed a man in cold blood. I mean, let's call it lukewarm. I, I could have stopped myself. And he also happens to be an ex-cricketer and cricket coach. Uh, so I did him. And we did that. And we did that as a, as a whole day's commentary on a test match. We went in the sky and we did it. And it wasn't broadcast, they recorded it. And it went up the chain and Sky went, it was great, great idea, really funny. Cricket's our premium brand. We don't want to be seen to undercutting it. I don't think, you know, sponsors wouldn't like it. I'm really sorry about that. And I think that's probably the same with costume drama at the BBC. You don't want something that is going, it's a bit silly, really. Downton's a bit silly. You see that thing there? It's a bit silly. And I can understand that thinking. I really can understand that thinking. Uh, because I think sometimes we look at the small pictures like, it's there. It's parentable. People would love that. They might. But I can understand how people might think, no. Um... But what they did, what we did then was... Um, so these are all reasons why your show shouldn't be commissioned, yeah. and yet it was. And yet it was. Well, we did a... Um, uh, there was talk about trying to do a sort of backdoor pilot, to use that great American phrase, of doing a one-off Christmas special. Uh, and you could more legitimately say, let's do this one-off Christmas special, and if people like that, then we'll do a series. Um, and so we said it shouldn't be a one-off Christmas special of bleak expectations because that would be strange then doing a series off the back of it because you'd have to set the characters where do you set the characters up um it, it would have been a bit odd so we decided to pitch something in the same world but with different characters Though ironically story. you'd already written that script of the whole setup <laughs> yes, hour. but it, but it needs to be it also needs to be a christmas special type thing and i think it would have been hard doing that with the characters from the radio show already established and we decided to go for a one-off separate thing and if they liked it we could say and now we'll make the series of bleak expectations and at some point that became, we liked the pilot script enough that if you did make a series, could it be of this? And you go, but, but we've got this other thing that everyone likes. So, uh. And, uh, you know, who knows how these things happen? And so there were hoops that were jumped through. Um, and the hoops always seemed to be slightly, and I think for no one's ill will at all, um, just, you know, each one a tiny bit away and that sort of multiplication of small errors into a big error. Not that I'm saying it was an error, but it became less on target than... There were different expectations at every turn from different people for different parts of the project. Yeah. And so therefore, once you'd made then three new episodes, people had different criteria for judging it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think, I think also there's the thing of trying to invent a whole new show set in the same world. So it's going to be sort of the same but different. And I don't think I realised how lucky I was with my own mind producing the original, actually. 
And I think one of the things I look back on and go, well, where was my idiot? Where was my sidekick idiot? I didn't have that. I took one of the things that I love best about the show, and I think people like the best, which is Harry Biscuit, you know, idiot character with silly name. A name so silly that even when my, you know, one of my daughters was very young, she said, what do you do, Daddy? So when I basically tell stories, she goes, well, what sort of stories? I went, well, one's about this uh, guy called Pip Bin, and his best friend's called Harry Biscuit. Big laugh. And she was three and you go, well, that, that's, just, that's just a funny name, isn't it then? It's clearly a funny name. I don't know how I've done that. Oh, well done. Well done, everyone. Well done, subconscious. Crikey. Well done, subconscious. And you're trying to recapture that in a different way. And I think it was that um, thing that no one, you can't, you can't recapture that. I don't want to say lightning in the bottle, but it, it does feel a bit like I, I lucked into writing something, you know, really good just by chance. Because there is, there is an element of chance to everything you write. I do, and I was very fortunate, similarly, that the first sitcom, really, that I pitched um, struck a chord, um, Think the Unthinkable, on Radio 4, and we got a Sony Award for the first episode. And I just thought, oh, blimey, this is easy. Pens down, retire. My work here is done, ladies and gentlemen. It is really, really not easy at all. Um, And so, you know, and and the next thing I, I wrote a sitcom after that, which didn't go very well at all. Um, But yeah, no, you do sometimes realise... Um, retrospectively that you you were very lucky with an idea which was the right idea with the right people at the right time and then so with all that in mind if you do a new show if you were starting a sitcom idea now which I'm, which mm. I'm sure you are how, how would you go about it? Oh, there'll be a lot of cake, coffee long walks, tears, rage, insomnia and at the end, that will come a beautiful, perfect comic gem. Or more likely, 73 pages of terrible crap where I wade through it and go, I'm sure there's a show hidden in here somewhere. Um, so you're, it sounds like you're a writer who, who finds the show by writing more than by planning. Yes. So I'm much more of a planner. Yeah. I kind of think of the idea, who are the characters, think about the characters for a long time, think of storylines... Plot storylines, plot, 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 plot. So by the time, I, and sometimes bits of dialogue come along the way, or a scene will pop up, and I'll write it. But in general, by the time I'm actually sitting down to write half an hour, I pretty much know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. Whereas it seems that you you write more, you you discover more by writing. Yes, and I wish it wasn't so, and I don't plan it to be that way. I do. If I'm sitting down to write an idea, I, you know, I, I sit and think for quite a long time. Um, but it's interesting you say snippets of dialogue don't leap to mind um they're they're sort of i sort of have you know like uh flash photographs of elements of the show where i go oh that's it i've got it oh and you know i'll sort of almost (laughs) literally holding my head as still as i can in case it tips out my ear i will get my way to a notebook and write down that thing and go oh is that what i saw in my oh i don't know um and no matter how much i try and plan and i really do write outlines and um try and do it really in a different way like grown ups yeah it goes mad it goes mad in fact I, my outlines are mad I've seen on Twitter a few times that John Finnemore who, who is excellent and his cabin pressure is brilliant uh, as a show I've seen one of his outlines that he's put up and it's, it's lovely it's like a it's like a flow diagram done by the best management consultants ever but funny <laughs> um, and it's beautiful it's all plot loops and you know little arrows round doing this and then uh, my friend Robert Thurgood created the show Death in Paradise I've seen he, him do the same on Facebook or something he's put one of his outlines up um, and obviously it's a very elaborate outline it's a murder mystery you've got to hide things and some of that 
beautifully neat and perfect again, like a more like more like a diagram from chemistry or something in that one. And I don't mind. I thought it's like it's like a spider drank ink and then exploded on a page. And it's just mad. It's full of it's, oh, and I I just can't think clearly and logically. Like someone enough. who's been locked up for a long time. A little bit. It's like a man who's gone mad with cake. <laughs> Mark Evans and I could have talked for hours, and in fact we did, so hopefully we'll bring you more of that interview on another occasion. Thanks very much to Mark Evans for being our guest on Sitcom Keeps podcast. If you're getting Dave Cohen withdrawal symptoms, then good news. You can spend uh, two days with Dave Cohen, not just one day, but two. He's doing some of his uh, writing courses on the 21st of April and the 22nd of April, uh, the 22nd is about uh, sitcom writing, but go to his website, davecohen.org.uk, and find out details about hanging out with Dave and learning how to write comedy, how to make a living from comedy. And that's uh, Dave is a guy who knows, because he has made a living from comedy for many, many years. So do have a look at that on davecohen.org.uk. If you can't wait that long and you want to hang out with both of us, uh, we're going to be at the Craft of Comedy Writing Conference on the 8th and 9th of April in Landudno, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Loads and loads of brilliant people are going to be there, and including um, who have we got on the list? Well, we've got Sean Ed William, who's the commissioning editor for Comedy on Radio 4, and the previous commissioning editor, Caroline Raphael. Uh, Jason Hayes and Joel Morris will be there, which will be lovely. Ian Martin uh, from The Thick of It and Veep is going to be there. And um, loads of people do have a look. Uh, look it up on the website, uh, Crafts of Comedy Writing Conference, if you just Google that, I'm sure you'll find it. And it's in Glandudno in North Wales. So that's going to be great. I think we're done. If you want to support the podcast, buy our books, look at our blogs, join our Facebook group and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks very much for listening and speak to you next time. Bye.